So as I said, we're studying the Old Covenant, that's what we're doing, broadly speaking. And we studied the law, we looked at different categories of Old Covenant law, we looked at the physical tabernacle, the tent in which the Israelites worshipped the Lord, and we looked at the different pieces of tabernacle furniture. We started a study of the priests a few weeks ago. We looked at their garments. Well, first of all, we looked at their identity. They were Aaron and his sons. So Levites were one of the tribes of Israel, and the priests all had to be Levites. But not all the Levites were priests. They had to be not only Levites, but also within the tribe of Levi, they had to be from the lineage of Aaron. We looked at their garments, the clothing that God specified for them to wear as they fulfilled their tasks. We looked at their ordination, their consecration for the work. And tonight, we're starting with an examination of the various sacrifices that would, that would be offered in the tabernacle. Because this is the work of the priests, or, or, or is central to the work of the priests. It's facilitating and assisting with and offering up the sacrifices of the people of Israel to God in the tabernacle. And so we're looking at the various types of sacrifices over the next few weeks. And we'll be covering the first several chapters of Leviticus as we go. And tonight we're in chapter 1 and we're examining the burnt offering, as it's called. The burnt offering was central to tabernacle worship. Every morning and evening in the tabernacle there was a sacrifice that was to be offered consistently, day after day, every day, morning and evening, a sacrifice. And this sacrifice that was to be offered morning and evening was a burnt offering. Back in Exodus 29, which we studied a couple weeks ago on the ordination of the priests, we read this in verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And then a couple verses below, it says, It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations. So these lambs offered in the morning and evening are classified as burnt offerings, which is what we're studying in Leviticus chapter 1 tonight. You'll remember from our study of the tabernacle furniture that there was an altar right in the middle of the outer court. So there was in the westernmost portion of the tabernacle, there was the most holy place. Then moving a little bit east from there was the holy place. And in the most holy place and the holy place, only the priests were allowed to go. Then there was the outer court, which was the easternmost portion of the tabernacle. And in the outer court, there was a bronze altar. And that bronze altar is repeatedly called in Scripture the altar of burnt offerings. So even though various sacrifices were offered on that altar... The burnt offerings were very, very central to what happened on that altar, such that the altar itself is called the altar of burnt offerings. So twice a day, these burnt offerings were offered as standard practice among the people of Israel. According to Leviticus chapter 1, the burnt offering was also offered whenever an Israelite wished. It says here, 
Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or the flock. Now, it's not regulated anywhere else how often they're to bring a burnt offering or there's no prohibition on when they should and so on and so forth. So theologians think that basically you could decide, I'm going to offer up a burnt offering to the Lord. And when you do, here are the regulations in Leviticus chapter 1. So if you decide that you're going to bring a burnt offering to the Lord, it needs to be either a male bull, according to verse 3, a male sheep, according to verse 10, or a bird, according to verse 14. These are the only acceptable animals that you can bring for a burnt offering. Why the variation? It's possible, in fact, probable even, that it has to do with income bracket. If you look at Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 7, this is laws pertaining to sin offerings, but it says in Leviticus 5 and verse 7, But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons. And then down in verse 11, we read, But if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for the sin that he has committed a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. So that's not, that's not laws pertaining to the burnt offering, so we're, we're inferring a little bit here. But it seems that if that principle holds with respect to sin offerings, that's probably also the principle that accounts for vari- variation with respect to burnt offerings. And so the wealthiest of the Israelites could bring a bull. And then perhaps the middle class could bring a sheep. And perhaps those in a lower income bracket could bring a bird. And we see this principle then that the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have, which Paul articulates in 2 Corinthians for us. The Lord doesn't require us to be rich in order to worship Him. And there were accommodations made, even in the Old Covenant, for every Israelite to bring acceptable worship to God in the appointed way. The animal had to be without blemish. You could not bring an animal that was on its last legs and you say to yourself, well, this thing's probably going to die soon. So let me go get some brownie points with God and bring this to the temple or the tabernacle and offer it as a burnt offering unto the Lord. That was not allowed. You weren't allowed to go into your herd or into your flock and choose out one of the weakest and sickliest animals. It wasn't, it wasn't to be your practice that in order to establish a good, strong breeding program, whenever you had to cull animals from the flock or the herd, you offered those ones up to the Lord because you might as well kill two birds with one stone. If you got to cull some animals anyway, you might as well offer them up to the Lord and get some extra points in God's eyes. That's not how it was to work. When you went to go choose an animal for a burnt offering, you're supposed to choose a good one. You're supposed to choose one that is without blemish. Now, notice in verses 5 and 6, and verses 11 and 12, it is the worshiper who brings the offering, who slaughters and flays the animal. 
not the priest. So if you bring a bull, you're the one who slaughters the bull. If you bring a bull, you're the one who flays it, who butchers it. If you bring a sheep, likewise. When it comes to the bird, the priest does it all, and theologians figure that that's probably because the bird is so small, there's actually not that much work to be done. And so since the priest is the one that's going to ultimately put it on the altar anyway, he just goes ahead and does all of the work with respect to the bird. But where it is a bigger job and a bigger task with the bigger animals, it is the person who brings the sacrifice who does the slaughter and who does the butchery and the preparation. The priest takes the blood and spreads it against the sides of the altar. This is in verse 5 and in verse 11. And then it is the priest who burns it. This is in uh, verses 8 and 9, and then 11 and 12. Or sorry, 8 and 9 and 12 and 13. So the worshiper slaughters and flays it, and the priest spreads the blood on the sides of the altar and burns it. Okay, so that is the ceremony itself. The whole thing is burnt up. Nothing is consumed. Um, sorry, I should, I should clarify that. Nothing is eaten. It is all consumed by the fire. Nothing is consumed by a human being. Nothing is eaten. Everything is burnt up. So that is the ceremony itself. What is its significance? This is not the main point. But note in passing the applications to our New Testament worship. First, that the worshiper was not passive, but was very much involved in worship. What would be the New Covenant worship equivalent to slaughtering and flaying your own sacrifice? When we come to church, we often think, okay, the people at the front are the ones doing the work. And so all we have to do is show up. And then from there, the pastor's got it. Right? But this is not the way worship has ever worked. Ever since the beginning, before there was a priesthood, obviously the priest wouldn't prepare your sacrifice for you. And even after a priesthood is instituted here in the Old Covenant, it's not just the case that you just show up at the tabernacle with an animal and the priest takes it from there. You are very much involved in the work of worship. And it continues that way into the new covenant. Who is it that is worshiping tonight? Me? Jonathan, who led our service? Just us two? Y'all are just observing? Just passively sitting there while we do the work of worship? Or are you involved? You see? From, we see a principle here that the worshipers are involved in the work of worship. Now, if I said to you, all right, listen. Well, if I said this to you, you should fire me. But if I said to you, we're going to have an animal sacrifice next week. And you are going to prepare the animal sacrifice. Never, never mind that that would be theologically heretical and you should fire me. If I said that, and if we were going to do it, suspend judgment for now, would you even know how? Some of you might, but probably the vast majority wouldn't have the first idea where to begin. 
So what you would have to do would be to research how do you slaughter a bull? How do you slaughter a sheep? How do you butcher it and prepare it for it to be burnt? All I'm trying to illustrate in this is that there would have been a certain level and a certain measure of preparation involved in going to the tabernacle to offer up a burnt offering. You, you wouldn't just think to yourself, well, all I need to do is just get there. You would think to yourself, not only do I need to get there, but I need to be ready to do what it is that I'm going to do when I get there. All right? Think about this with respect to new covenant worship. We don't offer animal sacrifices because the blood of Jesus Christ has been effective unlike the blood of bulls and goats, which could never take away sin. And that's why they were offered over and over. The blood of Christ Jesus has been shed once and for all. Because it was effective, it never needs to be repeated, which is why we don't sacrifice animals anymore. And it's also why Jesus didn't have to die over and over and over. So we don't do the same thing. But what would be the point of correspondence? You need to be prepared... To worship. When you come here, it's not just about getting here, but it's about having done the prerequisite work to prepare yourself to actually do what you're supposed to do when you get here. So you need to prepare your own heart to worship, not just externally, but internally. You need to study the Bible to understand what it even is we're trying to do when we get here. Are you just trying to just catch some special feeling when you come? Are you, are you trying to exalt and glorify God? Are you trying to encourage brothers and sisters? Are you trying to be entertained? Like what, like what are we even doing? You should know that. If you're coming to worship, you should know what you're supposed to be doing. And if you're coming to worship, you should be prepared to actually do that. And you should be prepared to not only do that externally, but to do that internally, which means your heart needs to be prepared. You should also be helping your children prepare. What will your children need to do when they get there? What is an appropriate way for them to participate in worship? We need to be actively engaged. It's, it's good that, we're, that we get here. But that's literally like the bare minimum, is that we get here. What we really need to be doing is preparing ourselves to worship in spirit and in truth, which means in, internally as well as externally, that's what in spirit means, and in truth means correctly, in accordance with how God has told us to do it. So internally and, and externally, in spirit and in truth, we're supposed to be doing something here, and we need to prepare ourselves and our families to do this, which, which means getting things in order, right? Like, Sunday, good worship on Sunday, proper worship on Sunday starts on Saturday night. Many people have noted this, so I don't have anyone specific to cite. I've heard it said many times. It's not an idea original to me, but I can't quote a specific person. Many good and godly men have, have noted and, and taught their congregations before that good, solid worship starts on Saturday night. If you're going to be here on time, ready to worship in spirit and in truth, clothed and in your right mind, then you're going to have to make some preparations 
ahead of time. If you're going to be able to get back here to keep not only the Lord's morning, but the Lord's day, then you're going to have to make some plans about what's happening in the afternoon and so on and so forth. You might have to rearrange your week so that Sunday is free to do the work of worship and cut other things out of your week so that you're ready to actually worship on Sundays. What I want you to see here is that it wasn't this passive just show up, but there was this expectation that not only do you show up, but you show up ready to work in worship. Secondly, with respect to how this passage applies to New Testament worship, we need to be willing to pay the cost of worship. Notice that a whole perfect animal was consumed by fire. Alright, now I want you to just consider, if you go to the supermarket tomorrow, how much does a pack of chicken breasts cost you? Right? Okay, now imagine if you were imagine if you were buying like a quarter of a cow. Alright, now imagine you're buying a whole cow. And it's grade A, like top notch. We're not talking about like, <laughs> like the offals. We're not talking about like grade C beef. Imagine that you got like a whole top-notch quality a whole cow. How much would that cost you? I don't know the dollar amount in Barbados. Maybe one of you does know. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say if we think a chicken breast is expensive. Alright? How about a whole cow? Right? Or, or a whole sheep? or Right? We recognize that even, even the turtle dove here has a, a cost associated with it. Right? And they took that thing, this perfect animal, and they prepared it to be consumed. They, they essentially butchered it. So it's not literally just like the whole cow comes, but it's slaughtered, it's cut apart, so on and so forth. The meat is right there, ready to be cooked and eaten. And then they put it on the altar and they burn it. The whole thing. And nobody eats it. Alright? That would, that would probably, as one commentator puts it, that would, that would be difficult even for us in the overfed West. But how much more for people wandering through the desert where meat was a scarcity? It is for this reason that much later in biblical history, people started offering up blemished animals to God. What they were trying to do was be economical. What they were trying to do was save money. But God says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? It, is, it was costly then to worship the Lord properly. And let me tell you, it is costly now to worship the Lord properly. Look, look I know I'm preaching to the choir because it's Sunday night and y'all are here. Okay, but for those of you watching online, <laughs> listen, 
Listen, what, what, one thing, I'm, I'm real serious about this. I don't, I don't always hammer and hammer and hammer and hammer on church attendance all the time. And like, look, even like I preached this morning, people are in process. Okay, but when people tell me that they don't have time to come to church, I find that to be one of the most reprehensible reasons that I've ever heard for not coming to church. Okay? Because there is literally nothing more important than worshiping God. So, you have 24 hours times 7 days every week. Now, if you were to say, look, I'm going to put into my schedule the most important things first. And whatever else I can't get to, I'm going to get to the most important things. Listen, the most important thing you can put on your schedule is to gather with God's people to worship the Lord. There, what, what could you possibly argue is more important? Now, obviously, people get sick, you get a flat tire, you know, you're traveling. Like, I understand. Like, obviously, things happen and sometimes it's unavoidable that you can't make it. But you got time for so many other things, but not church. You know, that's not right. And, and it's like, well, okay, well, I'll come to one, but I don't have time for two. And again, it's like, but you have all of these waking hours, seven days a week. And yet you can't set aside this one day for the worship of the Lord. It's like a whole day? Yeah, it's costly, isn't it? It's costly to set aside one day. But if this is what God requires of us, that we show up prepared to worship, and that there is a thing called the Lord's Day, right? That it is God's command that one in seven is His. Then, just like watching that burnt offering go up in smoke, we got to just watch Sundays go up in smoke. That's the day that we worship the Lord. And... And it costs us something, but it's a priority to us to do it. And we shouldn't shirk away from the cost. It costs us something often in terms of family relationships when we say, look, I'm going to church. I'm not coming to the family picnic. Right? I'm not com- I can't go to this barbecue in the afternoon even, even though it's between services. Because if I do that, I'm going to be way too tired to show up ready to do the work of worship on Sunday night. So I'm not coming. Right? My kids need a nap so I can bring them back to church ready to do the work of worship in the evening. So I'm not coming. Look, it rocks the boat. I know firsthand. Right? There are costs associated with worshiping God. Same thing with, with devotions in the morning. I don't have time. Are you reading? Like I ask people in pastoral care, are you reading your Bible and praying? I don't have time. Look, again, what could possibly be more important? Like, lose your job if you have to lose your job. Right? Like, like don't go grocery shopping. Be hungry. Like, literally, like, what? I'm, I'm, I'm putting it to you quite seriously. What is more important than walking with the Lord? I understand there's a cost because you've got to roll out of bed however much earlier, right? Like, let's say, like, 10 minutes, like, sort of, I mean, I'm not trying to quantify, but let's kind of put it in a minimal perspective. Let's say you were to like read your Bible and pray for 15 minutes in the morning, which is 
I, I would say relatively meager with respect to like just a whole Godward life. <laughs> like it's probably the least we can do, right? But let's just say it's better to start somewhere, right? I'm not trying. I'm not trying to needlessly guilt trip. But let's just say you say 15 minutes. Then it means 15 minutes earlier out of bed. And when you're tired and when you're busy, yeah, that's hard, right? If it's half an hour or an hour or whatever that you set aside to, to spend some time worshiping the Lord in the morning, it's even that much more costly, right? But the alternative is saying, I'm going to put other things in my weekly schedule and in my daily schedule, and I'm going to prioritize those things. And then I'm going to take what's left over and what's convenient to worship the Lord. Both in terms of Sundays, in terms of family worship, in terms of our individual private devotions. If I have something left over that I can spare, I'll give it to the Lord. Okay? Let me just ask you, is that more like the perfect unblemished animal or more like a blind and sickly one from the flock. You see what I'm saying? There are certainly implications that we can draw out of this passage about how God wants to be worshipped. So let us offer Him the best of our flock. Now, someone might say, well, it's not, it's not practical. I can't afford to lose that time. Right? I, I got to conserve my energy. My, you don't understand the demands of my job or my vocation or whatever. I got to, you know, I got to preserve and save. Matthew Henry says, we must never reckon that lost which is laid out for God. You might remember in our morning series in John about this sinful woman who in John chapter 12 comes and she anoints Jesus with this expensive jar of ointment. And people say, man, that should have been sold and given to the poor. But Jesus affirms this woman and he he condones what she's done. And when I was preaching on that passage in, in John chapter 12, I, I made the point, I emphasized the point, that there is a time and a place to care for the poor. There is a time and a place, likewise, to conserve energy and to rest up and get sleep. Right? I'm not anti-sleep. I'm not anti-prioritization. But there's also a time and a place for lavish adoration of God. And for giving God what might seem wasteful or excessive. So let us think about applications from this passage to New Testament worship. Now, more to the point with respect to what this burnt offering specifically signified. We read that it was for atonement. In this passage, we see in verse 4 that he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering 
and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. What's interesting is that there's a sin offering and a guilt offering that come a couple chapters later. So why atonement here if there's atonement there? Well, when the sin offering and the guilt offering are offered, they're for specific sins. Whereas what seems to be the case here is more like sinfulness. It's less atonement for specific sins and it's more atonement for sins in general. Or should I say sin in general. We have a need of repenting of particular sins particularly, as our confession of faith puts it. If you have spoken obnoxiously to someone, you've got to go back and apologize for that. If you stole a certain sum of money, you've got to go and apologize for that and make restitution of that amount. But then there's just the fact that not only do we do specific sins, but we are sinful. And we need forgiveness and atonement for that. It seems that the burnt offering is with respect to our general sinfulness. We also note that the placing of the hands on the head of the burnt offering identifies the worshiper with the creature. And so it's this, what is signified is this animal now represents me before God. And so when this animal dies, it's as if I died with it, right? This is, what, this is what propitiation means. This is how atonement is made. This animal dies in my place so that its death is reckoned or counted as my death. Michael Morales, who wrote a, a phenomenal book on Leviticus, I think it's called Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord. I was, I was referring to it again this afternoon, so I really should be able to remember the title better than that. But he points out that the way that this um, offering is discussed and described, it's even more apparent in the Hebrew, apparently, is that the smoke ascends up to God. That there is this sense in which this animal goes up to God. We, we could see it in our English Bibles where it says that it is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. I'm not going to begin to try to give you the Hebrew arguments because I myself have not even studied Greek and Hebrew, so I would be going in, waiting in beyond my depth. But I'm taking Morales' word for it, that it's even more clear. But we can even just, in the concept of just understanding that this thing is burnt, and it goes up and is a pleasing aroma to the Lord up in the heavens. And Morales' book, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord, is making this point that... The whole goal of the Exodus 
was to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt and to establish them on God's holy mountain where God would dwell with them. This is articulated explicitly in Moses' song way back in Exodus chapter 15. You will bring them in and plant them on your holy mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. So God will dwell with his people on his holy mountain. Morales picks up this concept this, that is articulated in Moses' song in Exodus 15. And he says that the psalmist develops this theme and asks, Who shall ascend your holy hill? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And so the old covenant makes it a possibility, hypothetically, to have clean hands and a pure heart, and thus to ascend to God, to dwell with Him on His holy mountain. And so this theme of ascension to God, to God's holy mountain, is very much central to Old Covenant tabernacle and temple worship. Now what we see, of course, is that the author of Hebrews tells us that that first covenant could not in reality make anything perfect. It couldn't actually give us clean hands and a pure heart. Not because of the defectiveness of the covenant itself, but because of our defect, that there was something that really needed to be changed within us that external rites and and ceremonies never could address. And so Christ is the fulfillment of that and so on and so forth. But there is this concept of ascension up to God. And what we see is that this animal dies, and as it dies, we die with it, so to speak, because of our identification with it, putting our hands on its head and identifying ourselves with it. What that means is that when it ascends, we ascend with it. That it is, it acts vicariously with us. That it dies, and that its old form of existence is gone, and that its new form of existence ascends up to God. Morales observes all this. I'm trying to summarize a whole book-length argument into like a few minutes here. But Morales observes all of this and notes that the burnt offering is really the fundamental offering, which is the telos or the end or the goal of all Old Testament worship. In and through and by this vicarious sacrifice, our sin is atoned for and we ascend to God. When the sacrifice dies, our sin is punished, and in its ascension, we ascend. Now, obviously, this prefigures and foreshadows Christ, our vicarious representative, who, having been identified with us, we with him and he with us, when he dies, we die. In His rising, we rise. In His ascension, we ascend. That in and through Christ Jesus, we have died to sin. We have been raised to walk in newness of life, as Romans chapter 6 
puts it. And Jesus has ascended and we've been seated with him in heavenly places. And he tells us that he has gone to prepare a place for us. That where he is, there we may be also. And so there is prefigured and foreshadowed in this, this burnt offering. The sacrifice of Christ. Which is vicarious. That his death is our death. And that there is his going up to God. And in some sense because of our identification with him. That we go up to God and are drawn up to God also. Christ is therefore our burnt offering. Foreshadowed and prefigured by this rite and this ceremony here in Leviticus chapter 1.